The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Ab, episode 874 for Monday, June 7th, 2021. <laughs> Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your cool stuff found, your tips, your quick tips, your questions, your thoughts, your complaints, everything. We mash it all up into an agenda that we loosely follow with the goal being that each and every one of us learns at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Clear, where uh, if you go to clearme.com and use code MacGeekGab, you will get uh, two months for free. And then uh, Upstart, where at upstart.com slash MGG, you can uh, you can take uh, take care of your uh, your credit, which is great. And then uh, a new sponsor, Wondery's Business Movers, The Enlightenment of Steve Jobs. Great new podcast series. I actually had the opportunity to pre-listen to the first episode. So we'll talk more about that a little bit later for now here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Trifle, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How are we today, Mr. John F. Braun? <clears throat> I'm good, but my brakes are broke. It happens. But, Them's the breaks. Mm -hmm. But they'll get fixed. That's good. That's good. Uh, and of course, we'll give credit to Kenny in our chat room at uh, live.mackeycab.com for, for that little witty comment. I have another witty comment, but it's really not that witty. It's just a quick tip, John. And maybe one of you will have an idea for me that's even better than this. But when I'm out riding my bike, I have my phone in like a pouch on my uh, on my bike, but I'm not using it. I, I don't have any reason. I have like a little mount for my bike, but I don't use that. Uh, so I have my phone with me, but I, I use my watch to track my ride. But bike riding time is very much for me like meditative time. And I have ideas that I don't want to forget. And so I'm always uh, worried about, like, how am I going to capture these ideas? And so what I've learned to do is just raise my watch up to my face and say, hey, S lady, text myself. And then it'll ask what I want to say. And I text myself whatever thought popped into my head. And then when I get back to the office or wherever, I've got this text trail with myself of all these little random ideas. And it works awesome. But I'm thinking... There might even be a better way than this, uh, but it's super efficient to just say, you know, Siri, text myself and it works great. So if any of you have an even better idea, let us know. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. He said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Yeah. Just want to capture ideas. Really, what I would like to do is put them into notes, uh, but I don't I haven't figured out a way to do that. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. All right. Um we have more quick tips, though, John, unless you have any thoughts on my first little quick tip there. Nope. All right, cool. Uh, then we have a quick tip from listener Patrick. Patrick says, uh, I ran across something new even after using Mac since 1984. Now that I have vision issues, this is even more important. If you go to mail, preferences, fonts in the top left left of this window are customization settings. 
noted by the little gear wheel. Select this and then edit sizes. Here, one can add or subtract needed or not needed sizes of fonts for all windows of mail. The change shows up in the size column at the far right. This is such a simple but necessary request for those with vision issues, especially working on laptops or smaller monitors. Now I have no more size nine or size 10 as options. I'm going for 14 or 15 or 16 because I need it. Thank you, Patrick. That's great. That's a great little tip. Yeah, I've, I've always found that menu to be extra cluttered with things. So decluttering the male's font size menu. I like it. That's good. You got uh, you have a quick tip about mail, don't you, John? Yeah. So I stumbled across this. So uh, in iOS, if you're in mail and you left swipe on a message, you'll get some options. More, flag, and trash. I use trash a lot. And sometimes I'll use flag. And what is that? It basically puts a colored flag next to that. And it'll propagate to your other mail clients. <clears throat> Or at least Apple Mail clients. I don't know if it propagates to no flag Apple ones. Flag is an IMAP standard thing, so it okay. will it will propagate everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Okay, um, but the default is orange, and I didn't want to do orange, so I'm like, you know what? What's under the More menu? So you tap on More, and one of the options in More. Wait, it's not there. Do you have to hold it down? Maybe you have to hold it down. Okay, this isn't doing what it did before. Uh -oh. So what it did before is when I clicked on more. Oh, okay, no, there's flag. All right. Oh, I see what happened. Okay, so you click on more, and then there's a flag option. Okay. And if you tap on that, you will then get a choice of different colors. And they're like, well, I wanted to make this one message green. So I click on green. Uh, what I didn't know is that this sets the default color to the last color that you picked. Ah, interesting. So this answers the question, how do I get a flag that is a different color than the default of orange? And that's how you do it. Nice. That's great. Okay, so we can change the iOS default email flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Flag and color, yes. Flag color. You're right, right. Yes, exactly. And you can then sort by those um and you can filter by those in the, certainly the desktop client. So those flag, those different flag colors can actually be meaningful. Uh, you on your phone, you mentioned that you swipe left to get to those options. I think you could set that to be a swipe right um, in yeah. mail. Yeah, th there's it, it, I think what you're doing is certainly the default. But um, if we go into is it in mail accounts? I think it is in mail accounts. Uh, no, maybe not. I know it's somewhere in there, John. Hmm. You go to mail swipe options. Oh, there it is. Yeah. So you go to, um, on iOS, go to, uh, settings, go to mail. And then in message list, you have swipe options and you'll see you have swipe left to be mark as red, most likely for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and then swipe right can be archived. But if you switch those, you, you can you can swap those back and forth and and have your options in different places. So another another quick tip really is all that is. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's good. Is good. All right. Uh, yeah, I like it. It's good. You want to uh, let's do some cool stuff found, John. You want to take us to Brother Jay? Ah, uh, yes. Hold on. Sure, man. 
Well, I think Brother Jay brings us one that that we've talked about before, but it's one I always forget about. And every time I hear about it, it's like, oh, I need that. So. Okay. Um, um, okay. Uh, Brother Jay mentions um, a piece of software that complements uninstalled PKG. And its name is Suspicious Package. Cool name, which began as a quick look plugin. It is now its own application bundle and inspects all components of any package. I use it quite often. This is one of those good examples by like software release notes. I found mention of those, uh, of this in those for better zip. Okay. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it looks like it was just updated uh, this spring with uh, native support for Apple Silicon. So it's they're very much staying on top of this. But yeah, being able to dig into those installer packages and see what they what they do there. The website for this, which is at mothersruin.com, says every macOS installer package looks the same. And they're right. Like if you want to look in and see what the package does, there you go. I like it. Pretty good. All right. Uh, Uncle P brings us one. Actually, that's not true. Uncle P brings us two cool stuff's found today. And uh, if I can find him, I will bring them there. He says, uh, file juicer and site sucker. Uh, he says, um, let me explain a scenario to you that might help show the use case. He says, we use Trello at work. Uh, Trello is a project management thing where you can have, you have all these different cards and you can assign them to different people and have tasks and notes and attachments and all sorts of things. Uh, he says, we have thousands of job files uploaded to Trello. Each Trello file or card lives, uh, lives in there and has anywhere from 25 to 200 files attached that were imported and extracted from outlook emails. Generally he says, so, uh, I wanted to be able to archive these. He says, I recently used SiteSucker with the direct link to the Trello website for my division at work. Located in that info was downloaded by SiteSucker. It was a JSON file for all the Trello boards for my entire division. I dropped the JSON file onto this file juicer app and it extracted all the web URLs and created a text document with only the web URLs buried within the JSON file. Okay. He says, then I opened the text file uh, in text edit, deleted all the stuff that didn't need to be there and was left with only the text info that ended with file types like PDFs, word pictures, etc. Then he says, I highlighted all the individual file type download links and open Safari, hit the drop down menu, selected the last file I downloaded and pressed command V and manually. So, so he created a list of URLs and pasted this into Safari's download window and it slurped all of them down. Uh, he said, but that was sort of a, a crazy uh, thing to do. And so with Site Sucker and File Juicer, it makes this a lot easier. And uh, I agree. That's really cool. So, yeah, I'm looking here. File Juicer, you can extract images from a PowerPoint slide or PDF files. You can extract images from HTML archives which you might've been able to do like pulling that down. Uh, you can rebuild p simple PDFs into word documents. This thing's like, what a great little, like he said, what a great little geek tool being able to extract images and things from files. He says it'll search entire files, which includes, you know, it'll, it, it'll draw, it'll check zip files and it'll just pull everything out, man. All right. That's good. That's, and then this site sucker one, uh, 
downloads the entire website as a sort of as a local website, uh, an HTML archive, if you will, but, but different from what Safari does. It doesn't put it in a package. It just puts it in a folder. So you could essentially replicate the website somewhere else. I mean, there might be some things missing, obviously that are server dependent, but wow. Pretty cool. Uncle P thank you for, uh, for sharing that. Yeah. Cool stuff found indeed. All right. I like it. You want to take Steven? Uh, or Stefan. Is it Stefan or Steve? Oh, it could be Stefan. You, you might be right about that. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. I have been using Splash ID for many years, um, and I like it a lot. Keeps track of all my passwords and all my other important info. Works on Mac, Windows, mobile, and web browser. Don't remember you guys ever talking about it, so thought I'd share. Curious if you have an opinion. Um, Interesting. Well, I mean, I took a peek, and it looks like Lots of big companies use it. Um, you do have to pay money to use it here, though I'm sure a company can negotiate uh, better rates. What I see here is uh, two bucks a month or twenty bucks a year. Okay, uh, but it seems to offer. Yeah, nothing here jumps out at me as being, you know, unique um, compared to other offerings, sure. but. Um, Hey, it may be worth, uh, worth checking out. Yeah. I, I, you know, I use currently use one password for all my, for all of this stuff. Uh, I know you use LastPass, John, and I'm very much considering moving to uh, something else called Bitwarden. We've talked about it on the show, but what's cool about Bitwarden is I can install it on my Synology, a server, the Bitwarden server on my Synology. Mm. Right. And now my passwords are only mine. They aren't even stored encrypted on someone else's server. Not that I have any issues with the way any of these people do their encryption on their servers. But um, and, and Bitwarden simplifies things a little bit. They make sharing uh, with like a, a group or a family or things like that. They they make that easier than it seems to be in one password with one password. Each password has to live in a separate um, uh, group or vault and that vault is shared with multiple people. So if I want to share the same password with you, John, that I want to share with my wife, but I want to share different passwords also with my wife, we either have to create a separate group that has you, me and, and Lisa in it. And, but it like, it starts to get really confusing. Whereas with Bitwarden, I can just say, okay, this password has this collection or this tag, but it can exist in multiple places. So I'm thinking about that because we do a lot of password sharing and stuff here, but also running it, you know, hosting it myself. I kind of like that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know, but it, it's, but it's, I've been having trouble importing my one password stuff in. So we'll see how I do, but, uh, but yeah, this splash ID, I, I don't know that I'd ever heard about them either. This is interesting. Yeah. They, um, I'm curious how they manage their like categories and sharing and things like that, because that might be a big thing for, um, for you, know, like you said, the corporate environment where you do have shared passwords in a more common way. So, yeah, oh, very cool. Very cool. All right. Any more on that one, John? Nope. Okay. Then I think it's time to let Michael share his thoughts about, uh, how to create a quick and dirty network attached storage solution. Maybe it's just quick. I don't think it's all that dirty. Hey guys, this happens. is Michael calling from uh, Long Beach, California. Uh, I have a quick, uh, cool stuff found 
quick tip. Um, you've discussed it before to some degree, but I've never heard it arranged this way. And it's a tip for people who are out there thinking about getting a NAS device for their home. Um, you know, those are not inexpensive in terms of um, uh, the price, obviously. But what I have is uh, set up kind of a quick and dirty version. I have a, a TP-Link router that has, you know, a USB port that allows you to attach uh, USB storage, which many routers today do, if not all. So I've got like a small one-terabyte Western Digital USB notebook drive hooked up to that that has all of my videos that I have ripped or whatever um, attached to the drive, so it's available to anything on my network. I have two Roku TVs, one in my living room, a larger screen connected to a home theater, and then one in my uh, office as well. And through a combination of, because I'm a geek, I also have an Amazon uh, a Fire TV in the living room and a Fire TV stick in my office. And, you know, via the Roku Media Player app, um, I can, you know, go in, select the drive, you know, a couple clicks, and I'm playing the stuff on the TVs. Uh, on the Fire TV uh, front, I found that uh, VLC has an app that works very well. Uh, you can click on it, click on the shared media, uh, and there you're watching stuff with the NAS. It doesn't matter where you are. I can do it on my laptop as well, you know, connect to the drive. I can do it on my phone uh, or a tablet, um, whether it's an iPhone or not, uh, via the VLC app. And it's a, kind of a quick and dirty NAS that's, you know, probably only about $130 all told between the router and the uh, and the USB drive. So just a quick suggestion to everybody out there if they want to be able to get into that NAS-type game uh, and um, not have to spend, you know, several hundred dollars to, uh, to get a NAS device. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for that. That's – I like that um, because most routers – not all – but many, I should say, perhaps have the ability to hang a drive off of them. Some even have time machine functionality built in so that they can act like a, you know, a time capsule on your network. But, um, but they can all, yeah, serve in some ways and VLC, he's right. We'll do this. Well, I think perhaps even, and there is a VLC app for Apple TV. So, you, you know, you can, you can do this, what he described, on all of your stuff, what a, what a, if that's what you would want a NAS for? That's a really interesting <laughs> solution. I don't know. What do you think, John? I like it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's um, Infuse might be another. It, it, Infuse is another media player app that works really well on Apple TV. Like it, it really creates. It, it makes it feel like you're connecting to a, a media, like a, a full fledged media server, even if you're not. It like it does a lot of its indexing and things like that. So I'll put I'll put infuse in the show notes too from Firecore. It's um they, they do a good job with that too. So cool. Thank you, Michael. You have uh what's up next, John? Mitchell. Mitchell. Awesome. Uh, Mitchell found this great extension for Safari called Pocket Tube. Uh also the and they also have it for uh, Chrome and Firefox. I needed to organize my channel subscriptions in YouTube, and I found this gem. After a year of COVID, I found the number of YouTube channels I've subscribed to exceeded 100. Wow. Um, this extension allows you to organize them in group. Paid version also allows subgroups. A lot of functionality with the free version. One of my favorite features is creating a page with unplayed videos of the group. Okay. Interesting. Well, uh... That's I ah, I can see this. Yeah, because I have I subscribe to a bunch of YouTube channels, but the only time I know that they've done anything is if they push 
you know, mm-hmm. if, if YouTube chooses to push a notification to me, speaking of which, you should subscribe to the Mac Geekab YouTube channel. Not only do you get notifications for when we're streaming the show live and you can join, but uh, we're also taking segments of the show and putting different stuff out there. We've got a lot of content pushing out. So uh, so we will we'll put a link to the Mac Geekab YouTube channel out there. But um, but yeah, I've found. I found the same thing just over the years. I've subscribed to a jillion different YouTube channels and um, I, I never even thought about how to manage them. It like didn't even it, it, it. I would love this is is what I'm trying to say, but I didn't even know I needed this because, you know, YouTube doesn't offer it. So what am I going to do? Well, pocket tube. There you go. Pretty good. All right. I like I love cool stuff found. I learned so many mm-hmm. things. This is where this is where I get my five new things. Easy, easy. Uh, Jeremy can help us with that because Jeremy told told us about something. It is uh, called Motion Sonic. Uh, he says I I saw this on the Daily Tech News show and thought you might enjoy it. He says I don't know if it'll work with drums, but it looks fun for a musician. It's a an Indiegogo thing that um it, it looks fan. It's really interesting. You it's a thing you wear. On like the the top of your hand, back you know the front of your wrist, the back of your hand, and it plugs in. It Bluetooths to your iPhone, and then your iPhone becomes a sound generating device for your, um, you know, f- for whatever you're doing, and it will. You know, you you move your hand and and flip your hand, and it will affect the music. It's kind of like if you've ever played a keyboard that has a uh, a pitch bend bar on it where you can like do weird things to the pitch while you're just holding down a set of notes. It's kind of like that and more, but it's all just baked onto your hand or not baked on. Like you can take it off. It's fine. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's there on your hand. It's um, 250 bucks, 200. Oh, it's uh, they've, they've still got some available for like 220 bucks. So uh, it looks pretty interesting. Again, it's, you know, it's Indiegogo. So, Take that with a grain of salt. It may never see the light of day, but uh, but it probably will. So there you go. Looks like it's seen the light of day. So <laughs> thanks for that, Jeremy. Pretty good. Thoughts on all that, John? Mm. Hand wave. <laughs> Hand wave. Yes. Yes. Pay no, pay no, never once do my fingers leave my hands. Um, Amazon Sidewalk is coming out. Jeff Gamut, uh, longtime staffer here at Mac Observer for many years and uh, it really just a great member of the Apple community put out a video about, well, how to disable Amazon sidewalk. But he also explained a little bit about what it is. So lots of your Amazon devices, not all of them, but lots of your Amazon devices, your newer ring devices, your uh, all of the later Echo products, I think, for the last two years. That you know your Echo Dot, your all the things that do the A Lady. Many of them can participate in what's called Amazon Sidewalk, and it gets turned on next week. You can opt out of this, and you can opt out bef- after it's launched too. But uh, but you can certainly opt out before it's launched. And what it is is it uses all of your uh, Amazon devices to create a mesh network uh, that allows both your devices and even your neighbor's devices to get online. If they have a weak signal, it'll also work with things like tile and, and all of that stuff to just really extend the, uh, 
extend the, the sort of the connected world. Now, this sounds like it could be a major privacy uh, issue, and it might be like we have not seen this thing rolled out yet. Uh, but it, it it's pretty cool that, you know, your lamp post, if it can't connect to your network, might be able to get a signal from your neighbor's other Amazon devices and and, you know, do whatever it needs to do, like turn on or turn off. And, and so like this idea of meshing our neighborhoods is is an interesting thing. Now, when normally when we say mesh, we're referring to Wi-Fi near as I can tell, this does not use or share Wi-Fi directly. What it says in their document is that Amazon Sidewalk uses Bluetooth, comma, the 900 megahertz spectrum and other frequencies to extend coverage and provide these benefits. Everything they describe about this makes it sound like it's using only Bluetooth, but it could be using other things based on that description. So bear all this in mind, but I really think it's just using Bluetooth and they say the maximum bandwidth of a sidewalk bridge to the sidewalk server is 80 kilobits per second. That's really slow. They describe it as one fortieth the bandwidth used to stream a typical high def video, right? So very mm -hmm. slow. And they also cap your sidewalk monthly data usage at 500 megabytes per month. So this is going, this is meant to be used for those things. Like I got a signal that, you know, your, your light needs to turn on. Let's turn on your light. Uh, it's all encrypted and secure. So your data is never again, according to Amazon, your data is never actually passing through any of this stuff uh, in an unencrypted way. And so you may choose to leave it on. I'm going to choose to leave mine on at least initially. And, uh, you know, I wish I could, I, it would be nice if I could get some metrics about like, Hey, you know, your neighbor's thing last month saved you or you saved your neighbor. Like that would be an interesting thing to know. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get that data. My guess is we're not, but, um, but you can go into the, the uh, a lady app on your phone and disable your participation in Amazon sidewalk and, and Jeff's uh, video, which I've linked in the show notes here uh, will explain how to do that for you. So, so uh, that's what I got. I don't know. Thoughts I on think this. What, the, what they're doing is not unheard of. Um, a lot of um, ISPs, uh, cable providers, especially if you have their device, yeah, will let you set up Wi-Fi, but will also set up a public um, option. Because uh, you got to wonder, you know, like for example, here we have Optimum. So everywhere I go, Optimum Wi-Fi is on the list of SSIDs because they have. Uh, because everybody, the, the, because there are cable modems everywhere, or they may have dedicated ones, but I, uh, but for what I understand, that's a strategy that they use as well. Correct. So, yeah. So, and, and the security thing, I mean, yeah, of course there's always security <laughs> concerns. Um, but it sounds like, yeah, I mean, they're doing exactly, they're bridging Bluetooth with your um whatever connection you have and they say as much so i i, I get the concept yeah. um yeah i i agree with you i'd like to see show me how this makes my life better 
<laughs> right. Even if it's that you made your neighbor's life better last month. Like, okay, mm-hmm. great. Like, okay, cool. Like, you know, you, you used 112 megabytes of your own data to, mm-hmm. you know, ex- extend your neighbor's lamppost functionality or what? And it shouldn't say lamppost. Cause now that's, that's getting it, but just saying that like, okay, that'd be great. Like, Good to know. Cool. Or I'm too far from my neighbors and it's not helping anybody at all. Okay, fine. Also good to know. But yeah, I, I, I like it. It's, I, it's an interesting uh, thing that, uh, that they're doing. So, you know, there you go. There is a, a development kit that I suppose you could, you could dig into and learn more. Lots of trucks on Friday mornings for Mr. Braun, oh, as yeah. always. Yeah, uh, I'm on the main drag or one are. of the main drags. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um the, the other thing that now that I'm reading more of this, here's the other thing is that it only seems to be limited to a, a very small set of devices that can use it. Correct. So like my phone wouldn't be able to connect to it. Well, in theory it could, I mean, if it's Bluetooth, but, but it um, wouldn't speak the sidewalk protocol. Right, right. right. Yeah, it's only Amazon devices. They say, um, okay, they, they, they have a thing here that says, what are sidewalk bridges and which devices are able to become sidewalk bridges? Uh, and, and so sidewalk bridges are devices that provide connections to Amazon sidewalk. Today, sidewalk bridges include, as I said, many echo devices and certain ring floodlight and spotlight cams. Uh, and then they give a list of which those are. Uh what it says is customers with a sidewalk bridge can contribute a small portion of their internet band, which is pooled together to create a shared network that benefits all sidewalk enabled devices. Uh, and they ask, will I know? So it has to be a sidewalk enabled device. It's not entirely clear what those are. Sidewalk enabled device. They certainly use that term quite a bit. Um, Okay, so sidewalk-enabled devices include, but are not limited to, ring smart lights, pet locators or smart locks, and other things so they can stay connected. So the, the example that, that is used is, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're not home to Bluetooth to your smart lock, but your Echo can Bluetooth to your smart lock and make a change to it, right? So if it participates in the sidewalk protocol, then it can leverage your, your, the Bluetooth devices that only your phone can talk to at home could talk sidewalk and be able to talk to a fixed device in your home or a fixed device uh, in a neighboring home. So that it, yeah, that's interesting. And it asks, um, will I know what other sidewalk enabled devices are connected to my bridge? Preserving customer privacy and security is foundational to how we built the Amazon sidewalk. Information transferred over is encrypted. Are not able to see customers who own sidewalk enabled devices will know they are connected to sidewalk, but will not be able to identify which bridge they are connected to. And they have a white paper about that. So I think the answer is we're going to get very limited, if any information about this, which is too bad. I would, I would like to know, but you know, it's okay. Fun. I think it's cool. I like this idea because I've, I've hesitated from buying Bluetooth smart home devices at times. If I know that I want to be able to access that device when I'm not home, or if I want my family to be able to access that device and it's like, well, it's paired to my phone. Like, okay. You know, like that can be sort of a drag. This could, if the developer opts in could change that drag. So I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. 
Um, all right, we got time for one more cool stuff found here, John. Um, let's do while we're on the subject of Bluetooth, let's do Scott. He says, uh, during the past few months, I've attempted to solve a problem I call <clears throat> lock when leaving. I have assigned the F-18 key to a keyboard maestro macro that turns off my desk lamp and sends a lock command to my Mac. It is flawless, but my memory is not. I occasionally forget to hit it when leaving, and as a result, the screen remains unlocked. Uh, he says, I use Living Earth Desktop as a screensaver, which, by the way, is another great cool stuff found. So there you go. Uh, he says, I've been trying to figure out a solution to this lock when leaving problem using a combination of iOS shortcuts, Apple script, Alfred remote and keyboard maestro. The result was a hot mess. I also tried near lock an app that requires installation on the phone and the Mac that didn't work. However, B L E unlock works perfectly and flawlessly every time. And that is my cool stuff found submission. He says, as your phone or watch moves away from the Mac, BLE Unlock detects a drop in the Bluetooth signal and locks your Mac. You can optionally unlock the Mac when that device is back within a specified range. You can set distances, signal strength, etc. It's very cool stuff. And he attached a screenshot to show. He says, it's freeware. He says, but I use the author's buy me a coffee to make a contribution because it solved my problem so perfectly. Very cool, Scott. Yeah, I like this. That's um, that's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Cool. Thoughts on that, John? Before we uh, before we move on here. No. Cool. No, that's good. Yeah. Lock unlock your Mac. I like it. Yeah. And and automatically, like you don't have to mm. like think about it. That's I like. I don't know if I'd want it to unlock my Mac when I come back be, because my watch unlocks my Mac anyway now. Mm. Right. So I, I'd probably leave that alone, but the lock my Mac when I, when I'm out of range, I kind of like that. That's pretty cool. All right. Uh, we have some questions of yours. We might have some more cool stuff found. We might even be able to do some of these backup follow-ups that you folks sent in. So we've got lots to do here. And the next thing I want to do is talk about our two, uh, three sponsors. If, uh, if that works for you, Mr. Braun, that works for me. All right. Our first sponsor here is a new sponsor for us, and it's a special one because it's all about someone whose fault it is that we're here to begin with. From the iPhone to Pixar, Steve Jobs led a career full of groundbreaking innovation. But as we know, his road to Silicon Valley success was a rocky one filled with failure and burned bridges. Well, the folks at Wondery have taken the new season of business movers and focused so that you can learn how jobs took Apple from near disaster to total triumph. We all know that Steve jobs liked to say that a computer is like a bicycle for our minds. He saw how bikes elevated our minds and our bodies. And he thought computers could do the same, of course, for the brain and jobs really just had a knack for seeing the big picture. I like to say he could see around the corners. He knew things th that would happen without really being able to see that they would happen Take, for example, Toy Story, right? Like computer animated films. Th the idea of that uh, th could be the future of movies like, or, or that a phone in our pockets could give us this universe of information that we all sort of take for granted here. I was able to listen to the first episode of this. I'm actually about halfway through and it starts. It's great. It starts with this. Uh, it, you know, sort of reworked exchange between Scully and Jobs about, you know, when when Jobs is leaving Apple. I don't want to 
I think we know the story, but I don't want to spoil, but it's so well done. You got to check it out. So go listen to Business Movers, The Enlightenment of Steve Jobs on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen one week early and ad free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. At Wondery, you feel the story. Go check it out. And our thanks to Wondery and Business Movers, The Enlightenment of Steve Jobs for sponsoring this episode. Hey, you know, our ability to travel is back or coming back. And I've had the uh, fortunate position of being able to do a little bit of travel. And one of the things I love about travel is Clear, which is our next sponsor here. Clear is this secure identity platform that creates frictionless journeys at airports and beyond. I've only been able to use it at airports, but you can use it at concert venues and things like that. Can you imagine how great that would be? Oh, man. And I like it because it just lets me move faster through airport security and then not only do I like the convenience, but there's a confidence of, you know, being able to move faster. You've got less time that you're interacting with, with people in those scenarios, which is great. And with clear, all I need is me. All you need is you. You do a quick one-time enrollment with your government issued ID, and then you get to use your face or your eyes uh, for safer touchless entry at airports. Like I said, stadiums, concert venues, and more. Signing up is super easy. You create your account online before going to the airport. And then once you get there, you do a one-time enrollment process. It's super fast. The first time I did it, you know, I had to do the, the quick little enrollment at the airport and then got to go through security. And it was still, even with the one-time enrollment, it was still faster than if I had not used Clear. So Clear is the absolute best way to help you get back to what you love. They've got locations in over 35 airports across the country, making it safer, easier, and faster to reunite with loved ones or take that much-needed vacation, right? It works great with PreCheck, too. And right now, because you're a Mac Geekab listener for a limited time, you can get your first two months of Clear for free. Yep, for free. Go to clearme.com slash macgeekgab and use code macgeekgab. That's C-L-E-A-R. M-E.com slash MacGeekGab, code MacGeekGab for your first two months of Clear for free. ClearMe.com slash MacGeekGab, code MacGeekGab, and our thanks to Clear for sponsoring this episode. Hey, do you like looking at your credit card statement every month? I don't. It's not fun. I don't know that anybody really likes it. Well, Upstart, our next sponsor here, can lift that weight off your shoulders so that you can finally feel the relief of being free of credit card debt. Because Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, and you get to do it all online. So whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, because we're geeks and we like cool stuff found, and you know some of that cool stuff found, you got to pay for. Over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. And one of the really cool things about Upstart is unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score. They look at things like your income and employment history, and that means that they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners, and it just takes a five-minute online rate check to see how it's all going to work for you. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash MGG. That's upstart.com slash MGG. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based upon your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Remember, go to upstart.com slash MGG. And our thanks to Upstart for sponsoring this episode. All right, John. Let's, uh, why don't you want to take us to David, my friend? Yes. Um... Dave discovered this feature last night and thought you might find it useful as a quick tip. 
Uh, one nice feature of the Apple TV, I've got a couple of them, is that they can turn on the HDMI attached TV when you hit the menu button on the remote, which is nice. Of course, there's no off button. <laughs> what? So how do I turn off the TV when I'm done? Go go find and use the normal TV remote like a cave person? Or, I don't think cave people had remotes, but... <laughs> I don't think cave people had TVs, John. I mean, but, they had rocks. They could, you know, like throw a rock to turn something off. This, If your aim is really good, mm-hmm. maybe this works in your house. But... I don't know. Throwing rocks at, at glass. Yeah. Um, so here's what you do. You hit the um, the S button, which is the, the one with the microphone um, and activates you know who and say something like, please turn off, I guess, the name of the device. And that's it. One remote to rule them all. One remote to find them. Oh, no, that's hair tags. Whoops. Um, <laughs> One remote to bring them all and in the dark mode to bind them. Oh, well. Nicely done. Very nice. I'll take a Lord of the Rings reference any day of the week. I wonder if they're going to put an air tag in the remote. Well, everybody's always losing their remotes. That would be nice. Yes. I'm Mm -hmm. glad they made the remote slightly less prone to being shattered, uh, the new one. But this power button thing, I like. Listener Dave is right. Like, there's no question mm-hmm. about this. However, there are there is at least one other way of doing this. The control center on the TV has a sleep function. And I believe when you put the Apple TV to sleep, it sends the off command to your television. If it's connected via HDMI CEC, which is the protocol that allows like a device like an Apple TV to control your TV's volume and power and things like that. So it, it, that needs to be there. And if your TV doesn't support HDMI CEC, then it doesn't matter. However, uh, most TVs do these days. And, uh, and so if you go to control center, uh, you do that by holding the TV button, which is the button with a picture of a TV. You hold that for Uh, They say, hold it for three seconds. That brings up control center. And then you can select sleep from there. I saw someone else say this is on Apple's article, which we'll put in the show notes. But I saw someone else say, John, to if you hold it down for five seconds, it will sleep without you having to, like, select that from control center. So that might also be the way to turn things off. I don't use my Apple TV remote this way, so I don't run into this problem. But uh, it's weird that that this is how life works. So, yeah. Interesting. 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 More on that one, or is it uh, time to move on? No, I'm cool. Okay. Uh, listener, Jonathan uh, wrote in about, you know, we were talking, he said some feedback uh, about the user with the battery issue from the last episode. Mackie cab eight seventy three says, I had a similar issue with my battery, sometimes draining to 0% in the afternoon, even when plugged in, even with managed battery turned off. He says it turns out that my computer was not getting enough power due to a damaged or underrated cable only delivering 60 watts of power. My MacBook Pro should get at least 87 watts. Getting a new higher rated power cable and power brick fixed the issue. He says I got the 100 watt cable and power brick from Anchor. Make sure your computer's getting enough power so it does not run a deficit and tap into the battery under heavy load. That's true. 
Um, I would think it, it depends on what you're doing with your computer. Like uh, I've seen MacBook Pros charge up just fine with the 30 watt cable, not while they're running, but certainly, you know, just like in sleep mode, uh, that should do it. I, and I, you're so you're you're right. Jonathan, hundred percent that if your computer is draining more than whatever your power scenario can provide, then you will run it down to zero. It'll use the battery. That's just how that goes. But I think there's more to this, including what we were talking about last episode, because I've seen power get weird um, with power delivery and especially uh, with regards to my both of my MacBook Airs, so my 2018 Air as well as my new, you know, M1 Air, I, like I've seen it where it'll say like you'll plug it in, the computer will will acknowledge, okay, yep, I'm plugged into whatever a 60 watt, 100 watt charger. Is it charging? No. It's like okay, but the battery's at 12. percent Like when are you going to make the decision to charge this thing? And I, I, this is a scenario I've seen many times and I can't tell whether it's something about the computer or something about the power brick. Uh, I, I talked with anchor about this cause it was an, you know, I noticed this on an anchor power brick I had and they're like, Oh, unplug it for 30 seconds, plug it back in. That might reset the power brick or that should reset the power brick. And I did that and it did work, mm. but it's all been very inconsistent. So I don't know if it really was the power brick or if it was, you know, something in the computer, in the OS. Uh, but there's something interesting. Power delivery is a negotiation, right? Like both devices need to talk with each other. And so, you know, maybe Jonathan's point about the cable is a more important part of this than I had originally thought. I don't know, but there's more to this. So making sure you're using a cable that can deliver the power that your power brick and computer are going to be passing between them would be uh, is important. So, but I, I, there's, there's a part of this formula that I'm missing. So I don't know. And I don't know what that is, but do you have any thoughts on this, Mr. Braun? Um, when I first started doing the USB C thing, yeah, I quickly learned that it's a mess. I think that, yes, yes. Excellent summation. You crystallized my thoughts perfectly. Yeah. Cause I had, so, you know, so the, the, my first exposure to, uh, to that world was my MacBook pro. Um, or was my Mac mini? No, I think it was my Mac mini. Okay. Or, but you what, no, no, it was the MacBook pro. Okay. Um, and it came with a power brick and it came with a cable, a USB-C cable. And I'm like, Oh wow, this is great. Um, you know, the, that cable is rated at, yeah, I think like 85 or 95 watts, which is what that adapter, Apple's adapter outputs. Right. I'm like, cool. I'm like, oh, well, this is USB-C, so I can use this for data, too. And so I tried it for data transfer, and I was looking at the speeds, and I'm like, this sucks. Because it was going at USB 2. So Apple's cable will, the cable that it comes with will carry the maximum amount of power, but it doesn't offer the maximum amount of data throughput, which is dumb in my book. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's less expensive is what it is. It is a power cable, right? Like I, I think mm -hmm. it, I think it's not even considered a data cable, except that power cables will allow data at USB two speeds to be transmitted mm -hmm. across them. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's the way, it, but they don't, market that way like it's not there's no it's not obvious that hey don't use this for data 
you know. The specs for it do mention it somewhere. They're like, oh, by the way, it does USB 2 data. But um, it's not obvious that that's the fact. And right. I don't see any reason why you why every cable couldn't carry the maximum amount of power and all that. I guess I don't know if it's more expensive wiring or, or what. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Like, what's the difference between a cable that can carry what, whatever? Like he said, 60 watts and one that can carry, you know, 95 or 100 watts. What, what is it? Is it just something in the, the smarts of the connector? Or like you said, mm-hmm. is it like is the wiring in the cable only rated to a certain point? I mean, yeah. heat would be involved. So maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I'm just thinking, I mean, that amount of power is typically in my mind not enough to melt a, a wire though i could be wrong i mean it depends on the wire but but mm-hmm. i agree with you i mean yeah yeah it's interesting mm-hmm. all right well if you know feedback at mackeycap.com mm-hmm. mm-hmm. feedback at mackeycap.com that's right feedback at mackeycap.com you want to take us to john john yeah john uh has a blast from the past here uh, I'm a newbie Mac user, having started using one in April of this year. My MacBook Air 2020 did not come with instructions to create a recovery disk. Do I need to create one, such as before installing macOS 12 into a course? Um, the reason I say blast from the past is that there was something called a recovery disk Um that I found back in the midst of time. And there's actually a OS 10 recovery disc assistant that you can download, but the article that talks about it, it was written in 2011. So, okay. <laughs> and it only, it, it, and they meant, and, and you see a picture of a lion when you go to this, uh, because this only apparently works on lion or mountain lion. Sure. So that's not what you do these days. These days, all of this is contained in Mac OS recovery. So I sent him a link that talks about macOS recovery and um, what features it offers. That's that's your recovery there. Um, uh, in the past, I have had occasions where recovery wasn't installed properly, in which case I'm wondering if having, uh, uh, in that case, having an external clone that we assume had <laughs> recovery installed properly on it, um, Carbon Copy Cloner is smart about this when it, when it's making copies. I know some sometimes in the past it would you know point out the fact, hey, you know, a uh, recovery's not here. I got to update it. It's like okay, that's that's good. Thank you. Um, or you may want to have a Mac OS installer, bootable installer, handy, and uh, because that can also run some uh, utilities. Um, last I checked, I. I think the OS installer is not just the OS installer. You could, I think it has disk utility on there. Or maybe it does. Not. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's what I thought. So that's another suggestion. And then I link to uh, how to create a bootable installer for Mac OS 10, just to round things out here. So that, uh, that should do it for you. Yeah. The, that the Apple's instructions for how to create a bootable installer are, are fantastic. In fact, mm-hmm. no, they really are. I mean, it, it uses the terminal, but it, like the the way they have it. So it's easy to copy and paste that terminal command for your correct operating system and all that stuff. It, it, it's great. Yeah. Now, of course, mm-hmm. you know, rewind to our discussion over the last couple of weeks and we don't know what the fate and future is of the idea of even booting from an external drive going forward. But mm-hmm. at the moment it still seems to be mostly possible. So we shall see. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's um, it's it, it's it, it's interesting where where things are going. But um, but yeah, yeah, the um, Apple's instructions work. It's great. All right. Um, moving on, listener Dennis has a question about deleting files which are in use. Dennis asks, I was recently updating my OS installer memory stick, speaking of, and I downloaded the OS X El Capitan and Mac OS High Sierra installers. This was done uh, as described in Apple's article, which is the one we just linked to. Uh, it says also the creation of the bootable installer worked. However, when I tried to remove what was downloaded, which was Big Sur, the latest update, it failed. I could move it to the trash, but I couldn't delete it uh, and empty the trash. He says, putting it back uh, from the trash, I could try to remove via the terminal, but it said that the files were in use. They've been sitting there for several weeks. Finally, I decided to try to boot into recovery mode and go into the terminal there and delete them, which worked. So my real question is, why did the OS think that my Big Sur installer or something inside it was in use? And secondly, the way they should, what way should they be deleted? Or, you know, is there another way? So, yeah, Dennis, this is interesting. Um, if you if you have the installer, like, mount, if, the, if you have just the installer app, that's one thing. If you have the installer disk image and that's mounted, then that will not let you delete it because the, the disk image contained there is mounted, but I don't think that's your problem. However, looking to solve it, I would do something uh, very similar in both cases, go to the terminal and there's a command called LSOF, which stands for list open files. Uh, if you just run that command, it'll take a few seconds and then you'll get this huge barfed out listing. Uh, you could manually comb through that or use the terminals search to find installer in there. And what's cool about that is it shows you the open file and the name of the application that has it open. That can fix, that can help you identify what it is that actually has this file open. This is essentially the same list that the operating system looks at when it decides whether it's going to let you delete a file. So something should appear there. You could also get fancy with the LSOF command and pipe it through grep uh, to only show you results that contain installer. And I'll put an example of what that looks like in the show notes. But really, if you just go to the terminal, type LSOF, press enter, wait a few seconds, it'll assemble the list and then barf it out. And then just use the terminal search command to look for installer or whatever it is you're, uh, you know, you're trying to delete. It will tell you the name of the process that is holding that file or those files open. And hopefully that gets you there. That's that's how I would do this, John. How about you? Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Cool. Uh, yeah, great. but I'm with. Yeah, it, it's annoying that it hangs on to those files. Well, and why doesn't wait, like if I'm going to delete something in the finder and it says mm -hmm. or empty the trash and it says I can't delete it because it's in use. Why doesn't it tell me by certain <laughs> process? Like, wouldn't that be super handy? To say, mm -hmm. oh, some this is what's using it. Okay, great. Like, why do I have to go sleuthing on my own? Well, the thing is, they do that in the Finder already. Sometimes, um, when you try to unmount a network volume, um, often I've had it say, "Oh, I can't, I can't unmount this because VLC yeah. has a file open on me." Oh, okay. 
Yeah. I've seen that even on not network volumes, just other, you know, yeah. external discs or whatever. Absolutely. That's right. It'll say photos is using this drive or whatever. It's like, oh, thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You saved my butt. Yeah. Why can't it tell me in this scenario? It's literally the same thing. Well, not maybe not literally, but nearly. Why not add a button thing. like or even with the. um, You know, if you try to unmount something and it's like, oh, yeah, VLC is using it. It's like, well, why don't you offer to let me quit VLC? <laughs> What a great idea. Just could like you when, put another, could you put another button there? Yeah. Just like when you're like restarting your Mac and it says this app is mm -hmm. open. You want to quit it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd like to, that would be great. Thanks. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Huh? Interesting. You want to take us to bill? All right. Bill got a, uh, the, this one's quick. Bill asks, do you know if it is possible to target boot a Mac a MacBook air 2015 to a MacBook air M one so I can transfer files? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Moving um, on. No, just kidding. Uh, and the, the answer is in a article, which will, <clears throat> excuse me, of course, link to, um, from Apple titled transfer files between two Mac computers using target this mode. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, you put a cable, of, of a certain type between the two computers and then you use a certain key sequence to start one or the other up in uh, in target this mode. And, uh, and then all of a sudden it appears as a drive on the other machine. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the differences are that that article does link to another one. Um, apparently, it's a little different doing it on an M1. Um, so they have like a sub article transfer files between a Mac with Apple Silicon and another Mac. Hmm. Which is what he wants to do, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, okay. That's interesting. What is the difference here? Ah, because on Intel Macs, to get into target disk mode, you start it up by holding down T. Uh, mm -hmm. Apple, thankfully, has gotten away from us needing to memorize all these different incantations. So on a Mac with Apple Silicon, it says to press and hold the power button until loading startup options appears. Uh, and then when you click options... You can go, oh, yeah, it's a little bit different. You click options and then continue, and that brings you into recovery mode. And then you go to utilities and share disk, and you pick the disk or even the volume that you want to share and click start sharing. Uh, and then on the other Mac, you open the finder window. You Oh, you click network. So there is no target disk mode on Apple Silicon. That's interesting. So there, no. So the answer to his question is no, you can't put no. it into target disc mode. Um, this is, yeah. Um, yeah, it says you can connect a Mac with Apple Silicon to another Mac so that the Mac with Apple Silicon appears as an external hard disk. And then you can transfer mm -hmm. files between the Mac computers. Yeah, this is interesting. I could have sworn that they would do target disc mode, but evidently not. You got to do it over the network. Um, yeah, there is no connect a, a file between them. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll put this link in there. I learned that we talk about learning five new things. I learned, I learned a fifth. So mm -hmm. that's, um, or maybe a sixth. That's great. Very interesting. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Now that I'm reading that again, uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. 
And for the most part, you need a USB, let's see, USB, USB-C, or Thunderbolt cable, or FireWire, not the FireWire. For <laughs> Intel Macs only. Right, right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, there, there we go. There we go. Yeah, fascinating. Thanks for asking, Bill. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we went through that. I'm glad to learn a thing. Uh, if you want to learn five new things, make sure you stay subscribed to Mac Geek Up. Go to MacGeekUp.com, and uh, you can even subscribe to our show notes there so that you get an email with all the links that we talk about in the show get sent to your show notes. So make to get sent to your email. They, they are the show notes. Uh, we send them every week. So there you go. Hey, I want to take a minute and talk about our next sponsor here, which is Linode, a great sponsor to be talking about as we kick off WWDC week here. You're going to need a server, especially if you're a developer or a budding developer. And Linode is the place that you're going to want to go because with Linode, you get data centers around the world and they have super simple paths to get you started. They've got this whole cloud manager where you could just get to log in. If you want to do the geeky stuff and just get a terminal account, you know, for your an SSH into your server, you can do that. But you can also just create it from their cloud managers so that you don't even have to dig into that stuff. Leave the hosting nuances to them. You do your development stuff or whatever it is you want to do. And, you know, we talk all the time about one of the things that we've loved over the years about Apple is their customer service. Well, Linode understands that every business is the customer service business. And in fact, they are celebrating five different Stevie awards from 2021, including customer service department of the year over there at Linode. That's a big deal. Kudos to them for that. That's hard work, man. Customer service isn't easy. And I'm super stoked that they prioritize it. It makes me proud to have them as a sponsor here. Another thing that makes me proud to have them as a sponsor is you can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit just because you're a listener of Mac Geek Up. You'll find all the details at linode.com slash MGG. You also get 24-7, 365 human support. So go check it out. Get your $100 credit. Visit linode.com slash MGG and click on the create free account button to get started. Our thanks to Linode for sponsoring this episode. Next up is PDF Pen 13. Look, PDF Pen is one of those apps I use all the time, especially I know a lot of us are using it now because so many more of us are working remotely, right? And so PDF Pen's UI has been thoughtfully redesigned and modernized. Uh, They've really, truly kind of taken the best from other editing applications and factored that in to the experience that is PDF Pen 13 so that it feels familiar, but it's now a little more refined. They've updated the toolbar with essential markup tools. They've got an editing bar to add font selection and accessible color controls. They've improved the sidebar. So much great stuff that they've done here. I like using their dynamic stamps because I can put like my name and the date right in there. And then I can also put my signature in. They do such a great job. And of course you can even edit text here in PDF pen 13, which is amazing. It's a PDF. You can edit it. You shouldn't be able to do that, but it's great that you can because sometimes things have a mistake or need an update and you can just do it without having to go find the original source. You need PDF Pen in your toolkit. I'm certainly glad I have it in mine. Go check it out. Go to pdfpen.com slash podcast. And our thanks to PDF Pen and the folks at Smile for sponsoring this episode. Last episode, John, we were talking about uh, Safari's auto uh, Safari's browser header. Sorry. 
the next question is about autocomplete. And I was reading ahead um, and uh, we were noticing that even on M1 Max, Safari identifies itself as an Intel Mac. And listener Dominic had an interesting thought about why that might be. He says it might be that Apple has scored a point over Google by not identifying Adam's Mac as an M1 based Mac when he logs into Gmail. There's a white paper that Apple put out about Safari back in November of 2019, where Apple says to combat browser fingerprinting, Safari presents a simplified version of the system configuration to trackers so that more devices look identical, making it harder to single one out. Lying about the CPU to prevent Google and others from distinguishing between types of Mac may be a part of this strategy. That's really interesting. I think you might be right about that. I know Apple, like the whole, obviously, especially nowadays, the whole fingerprinting thing, uh, like that, that's a, that, that's the way people are tracking us because Safari is blocking so many other things. So to, to have it, you know, genericize this and not highlight, um, Intel Max or not highlight M1 Max separately. I don't know. What do you think, John? I don't know why you'd want to. Except for testing purposes, I I don't know why you'd want to change your identity. Hmm. Well, it's not changing it so much as they didn't Hmm. add anything different in. Right, right. Right. Like the M1 Max don't look new. They they just look like everything else. So, uh, yeah, I always thought it was weird that it included Intel in the Safari header at all. Right. Like, why include the CPU type? Why not just take it out? And maybe that's what Apple will do in the future. Mm. Keep it generic. Uh, uh, servers don't need to know what kind of processor you're on. Like, that that's not going to make any difference as to how mm. we send HTML down. It's probably uh, not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, I mean, it's fun for, you know, uh, collecting usage statistics, you know. Well, that's the problem, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's the issue. Right. Right. It, all these things that, that are nice to use could also be used to fingerprint Mm. us, which is sort of the, the, the catch 22 there. Yeah. All right. You want to, uh, you want to take us to Brian? I'm trying to think of where we should go. Yeah, take us to Brian. Let's see where we do, and we'll either do backups or a little more right. stuff found after this. Uh, yeah, I've never had... Figure I'd shoot an email about this phenomenon that I can't figure out. When I type words on my iPhone that end in G, like anything G, autocomplete often puts an extra space and a hanging G after the word. This happens often, but not all the time. Sometimes I don't get the extra G. I'm sure this is user error, but I can't figure out what I'm doing wrong as I never notice what's happening until after iOS autocomplete is inserted a space on the extra letter. Um, I think this is what's happening, Dave. I found a write-up that suggests how to fix this, titled, How to Remove Words from iPhone Predictive Text. Okay. Um, uh, from Macworld UK, and it's a fairly recent article. Um <laughs> Here, so, so I'm not sure how the how that you know weird representation snuck in there. Um, the article, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of clickbait actually. How to remove words from iPhone predictive test? Reset your keyboard dictionary. Um, you cannot m- remove individual words uh, according to this. 
That's correct. Yeah, you're right that you can't. Yeah, yeah. that would be, I guess that's where I would start with this. I mean, it's as good a place as any. It It seems odd to me that it's happening with all words ending in G, not like, like that's what, and, and again, I don't know the ins and outs of how predictive text works. No one does. Uh, well, you know, no one other than Apple's engineers. So mm -hmm. maybe it's being intelligent about it, but that doesn't seem like, like I'm trying to think of how you would erroneously get to that being an intelligent thing to do. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, but that's a, as good a place to start as any. I would also want to kind of look over Brian's shoulder as he types. You know, I'm thinking, what would I do if I were there? And I like, it could be user error. It could be that, you know, when he's swiping to hit the space bar, maybe there's a, like his thumb is dragging. I, I think, I don't know, but it, like that would be an interesting thing to, to, to look at. Yeah. That's bizarre. Yeah. I'd want to try it, but wiping that out. I'm, I'm in on that. Sure. Sure. Um, we have a few comments, John, about backups. We to sort of wrap that discussion up. In fact, we've got more than a few. So I'm going to try and get through as many of these as we can. Uh, but we want to give them each the, the time they deserve. So listener Steve starts us off here and says uh, on your discussion about how sync can now be called a form of backup. Keep ransomware in mind. iCloud does not allow you to go back to a point in time to recover around the ransomware event. Other sync solutions may support restore from a particular time. But until we've addressed ransomware, I think we still need traditional backup. And you're right. Uh, I, I want to share Dan's comment and then we'll we'll kind of do we'll, we'll discuss both of these together. This is this is great because Dan says um, he says uh well, I understand David's comment about backups in 873. My philosophy is still that backups are backups and syncing is syncing. My case in point is how I got caught yesterday. He says, I have a financial program, Banktivity, which saves information as changes are made. My input file is kept on iCloud Drive so that I can access it from either of my computers. That changes, the changes that Banktivity makes every, uh, every few seconds are synced and it's fine. Uh, yesterday, I realized I didn't mean to make a to delete a certain thing. And so I started to go to time machine to re retrieve a previous version of my banktivity file. Wait, I thought the file is on iCloud drive. So time machine doesn't back that up. Let me go to my clone backup. Oh, wait, the files on iCloud drive. It was at this point I realized I didn't have a backup of this file on my iCloud drive. Uh, he says, I do now since I set up carbon copy cloner yesterday, he says, but it took several hours to correct my problems. I understand that having my file on iCloud Drive is good because I will have an off-site backup of the file, but you can still shoot yourself in the foot without a proper backup if you can make changes to the file and not get those changes back. So this is why I still feel that backups are backups and syncing is syncing, such as iCloud Drive is not a backup. And you're right. iCloud Drive is, is a limited form of syncing because it doesn't do versioning. And I think versioning is when I say that, you know, I don't know when the next time will be that I would need to rely on an actual backup. It's because the syncing that I have my data doing is done via services that use versioning. I do use iCloud Drive for some things, but I also uh, I, I also back that stuff up because it's not versioned. 
And I realize there's an asterisk there because iCloud Drive is sort of versioned. It, it versions inside of specific apps. Like you can see older versions of pages and keynote and numbers, but you can't see older versions of Banktivity because Banktivity hasn't written their APIs to support that in Apple's framework. But Dropbox has versioning and it doesn't matter what the file was created with. Um, you know, my Synology drive has versioning, doesn't matter what the file was created with. So those things are more like backup with versioning than uh, than an iCloud drive scenario would be. So so, yes, excellent points, Steve and Dan. Uh, yeah, very much so. So mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on that, Mr. Brown? No, I concur. Mm. Versioning is important. Versioning is is versioning is the thing that to me takes sync and turns it into a form of backup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it is that versioning for sure. Um, Glenn, uh, to address Corey's initial question, which was, Hey, how do I back up, you know, multiple computers now that, um, Backblaze is going to charge me differently. Glenn says, um, if you don't want to pay Backblaze for multiple computers, my solution is that if you have a desktop Mac or one that stays in place all the time, connect a big disk drive or a, a JBot enclosure and share that with all your other computers. Have each computer back up to a separate folder. You could use Carbon Copy Cloner or even Time Machine if you really want on that direct connected drive. Then have Backblaze back up just that computer that has the drive connected and you'll get all that data. So, yeah, that would work. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Glenn. Mm. That's great. No, it's it, like that. That is true. That's how that's how it works. Um, thoughts on that before we share James's idea here? <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of avoiding a per machine uh, charge. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it does mean when you restore that you have to restore, you know, right. you've got to you've got to know what you're doing. Eyes wide open as always. Right. Um, listener James reminds us, he says, um, David, in, in episode 873, listener David made the case that backups are needed less than before. He says this is somewhat true if he's talking about only the system drive. What he and surprisingly y'all forgot to mention was that data on external drives, including Synology, also needs to be backed up. We talked about that a little bit, but you're right. It, it, it The point stands. It does need to be backed up. He says I recently had one of my external drives go belly up. And because I back up my external drives using Backblaze, I was able to recover all the data I added once the replacement got to the system. There's no way I was going to be able to cost effectively back up all that data using sync or something like that. So fair. Yeah, you definitely want to have you want to make sure the data that is anywhere is only is never only in one place for sure. And, and that's that's super important. I'm glad we're I'm glad we're doing this. Thoughts on that before I share Corey's Corey blew my mind, by the way. Mm -hmm. something. So I, I definitely want to share this before we wrap today, but do you have any thoughts on, on that or anything else we've, we've shared here, John external drive, um, consider encrypting your external drives. Oh, that's yeah. an interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. Just in case somebody walks off with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that tip. That's a good one for sure. Yeah. And I still think it's easy enough through the, I think you can do it through the finder. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or direct connect drive. Though I don't really have, you know, honestly, I don't have a lot of direct connect drives that I use constantly. I think the only one really is my clone, my clone drive for both machines. And then sure. of course the NAS for everything else. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. 
All right. One last thing from Corey, uh, who was the one who asked the original question about backing up. And he says that thanks for covering this. He says, I spent some time with your suggestions, especially ARQ to back up my Macs to my Synology. And he says, um, I saw that ARC or ARQ, I guess we'll call it ARC, can back up to a folder on my NAS. But I found reports that everything is more reliable if you use Minio as an S3 style server to manage the connection, which can do things like atomic rights to ensure data isn't left in an inconsistent state. So I want to unpack what he said here. So just like time machine can have trouble when writing over the network, so can anything else, right? If all you're doing is backing up to a computer or device over there that is acting as a file server, that device is sort of acting as a dumb file server. And that's the issue with time machine network backups. If something happens in the middle of the backup to the connection, which is far more likely to happen over a network than it is to a direct attached drive, then you wind up with corruption. And this happens all the time with, with time machine because there is no smart time machine server, right? Nothing that knows that you're sending a backup to it so it can manage the data coming in in an intelligent way. And if it stops in the middle, well, forget what it was trying to send. Don't corrupt the backup. But that doesn't happen with time machine. And that also wouldn't happen if you were using ARC to send to just a, you know, an SMB share, an AFP share, whatever you're going to write to. However, what Corey points out is that Amazon S3 is a, it is, you know, cloud-based service that Amazon offers. And it is smart about these things. It does make sure that, you know, it gets the whole file before it writes it or overwrites the previous version of it and that sort of thing. What's cool is that there is a server application, we'll call it an app available for Synology called Minio, M-I-N-I-O, that acts like an Amazon S3 server. So now you can back up to your Synology with an intelligent backup server host so that it will deal with things like drop network connections and that sort of thing. And there's an article that, that we're um, on uh, arc backup site that explains how all this works. And uh, you just install a Docker container with the, uh, with the, the Minio thing and, and, you know, tell it where you want to point your backups and boom, you're good to go. So I am definitely going to try this out because I am sick and tired of my time machine backups dying and it never even dawned on me that if I switch to Arc, I might suffer exactly the same issues um, for the same reason. If I'm if I'm sending over the network in exactly the same way, right? Doesn't matter what the client app is; it matters what the server app is. And without us, without a server app, we're in trouble. But Minio could be that server app. I love this idea. Super excited about it. I know I'm I'm crazy, but you know, what do you think, John? Don't wait. Don't ask, answer the question about whether or not you think I'm crazy. Answer the question um, about what you think about the, the core <clears> thing. <laughs> um, it's nice that there's an open source S3 compatible server. I had never thought of that. I know. Same. Same. <laughs> yep. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, that does bring us to, uh, actually brings us nicely to the, hour and 15 minute mark. So I think it is time, John, to bring the band in and, uh, you know, and do our thing here, my friend. 
Thanks for hanging out with us. Hey, look, uh, the day this episode comes out, which is, of course, Monday, June 7th, which is the day of Apple's keynote. The keynote will be happening after we've recorded and released this episode, despite what Apple Podcasts might tell you, because they take a long time to show in their feeds. Still, they're working on that, they tell us, and I believe them. However, John and I will be getting together Monday evening after both the uh, keynote and the State of the Union. And we will have special guest Dave Mark from uh, from the loop uh, chatting with us and sharing his thoughts on the keynote reaction or on the key on the keynotes, too. So we'll make it a three way conversation and have some fun with it. Little uh, little post post uh, post keynote party like we would have if we were all at WWDC together, even though we can't be together. So. All right. Maybe next year. I look forward to that. That would be nice. John, you have anything to share here before we, uh, before we exit? Mm, no. How do you want to find us? Mm. Uh, there's always Twitter. He's Dave Hamilton. I'm John F. Braun. The podcast is Mac Geek Gab. The publication is Mac Observer. And there's Pilot Pete. Yes, we got to get Pilot Pete back too. Yeah, like well, he could join just like uh, Dave Mark could. Like it would be easy, or he could come here to the studio because he lives ten minutes away. All right, uh, thanks again. Thanks for hanging out, folks. Thanks for checking out all our sponsors. Of course, the ones we mentioned in the episode. Uh, check out Business Movers, the Enlightenment of Steve Jobs. That sounds like a fun one. Check out ClearMe.com slash MacGeekGab code MacGeekGab. Check out upstart.com slash MGG, of course. Check out, uh, I mean, you could go to MacGeekGab.com slash sponsors and learn about all the active sponsor deals, even if the sponsor is not active. We keep them, we try to keep them alive for you as long as we can. Thanks to Smile, Otherworld Computing, Barebone Software, Linode, all these companies rock. John, speaking of getting together in person made me think of uh, one of the last times we were together. One of the most recent times we were together. I don't want to say last. One of the most mm -hmm. recent times we were able to get together with Mac Geekab listeners. So I'm going to let them and us share our thoughts uh, about how to spend your week for us here. And uh, enjoy WWDC, folks, and we'll, uh, we'll talk again after uh, after the keynotes but for now we'll leave it to the crowd at the last the most recent in-person max stock take it away Don't get caught. i like hearing all of you it's good <laughs>